Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and you shouldn't either. Be skeptical and confirm information before sharing it. Please also be advised that I swear, and I don't take the time to bleep it out, so listener discretion is advised. About a hundred homes. The governor of Missouri declared a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters Hi, I'm Ruby, and this is episode 57 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. I missed it. I completely missed it. Somehow, there has been an updated version of the House Hipple commercial for two years, and I never came across it. I mean, I don't have commercial television, so that could be an excuse, but I spent hours specifically diving into Canadian online resources for information literacy just a few weeks ago. What the fuck? I even showed the original to one of my kids. How did I at no point come across the fact that it had been updated? How did I at no point come across this new version? Hanging my head in shame on this one. Seriously. Anyway, I hope when you looked for the House Hippo commercial that you also came across the newer version. If you did not, I'll have links to this and some other things posted in Facebook by the time this goes out. Today I'm going to give you another skeptical podcast recommendation, talk a bit about harpy eagles, and in honor of World Poetry Day, which is tomorrow as this comes out, I'm sharing a famous speech that I adore, which always read like a poem to me. It's called, You Want a Physicist to Speak at Your Funeral. My research segment today is about my passion, a little bit about how and why I fell into skepticism, and the lessons I gained from two very enlightening books. Last week I spoke specifically about information literacy, but skepticism goes much further than that. Proper acknowledgement and acceptance of science and skepticism together could save us all, but the science deniers keep coming into power and shutting real progress down. And on that note, if you have joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. This is going to be one of those skeptical segments where I try to send you to another podcast. Skeptic and science communicator Cara Santamaria has a podcast called Talk Nerdy. She has been a TV host, a producer, and a journalist, but of course I know her best through skeptical communities. I love this show because you get to hear from scientists, researchers, and authors from all the scientific fields you can think of. Many of my favorite nonfiction books were discovered through Talk Nerdy. Some examples, if you are a reader, are Storm in a Teacup, The Physics of Everyday Life, Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, The Bodybuilders, Inside the Science of the Engineered Human, one of my favorites, Your Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion Year of the Human Body, And of course, I also have to mention another of my favorites, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. I probably would have never even heard of some of these books or their authors if not for this show. And as I said, some of them have become my absolute favorites. Cara Santa Maria introduces us to the real people in atmospheric sciences, wildlife sciences, environmental sciences, oceanic sciences, you name it, and she's probably had on either someone with a degree in it or a science communicator who has written about it. 
Other than her own podcast, you will also find Kara Santa Maria on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe or working alongside Bill Nye on TV projects. She is also currently studying to be a therapist who specializes in end-of-life issues. I find her input on these topics to be very enlightening. So go listen to Talk Nerdy and learn to be skeptical, damn it! No environmental story today, so let's jump into a wildlife one. Amazon eagles, or harpy eagles, are the world's largest and, to me, most cool-looking eagles. They are so much cooler looking than our North American ones. 98% of harpy eagles are located in the Amazon. They prey on what are called canopy vertebrates, which are basically vertebrates which stick to the trees. These include monkeys and sloths. When these creatures become less attainable, the harpies, not harpies, that's a very different thing. The harpy eagles do not try alternate sources of nutrition. This is not good because as deforestation in the Amazon rainforest continues and even accelerates in some areas, canopy vertebrates are moving on to different areas. A harpy eagle is unlikely to remain in a canopyless area. According to a study published in Scientific Reports, areas of the rainforest where more than 50% deforestation had taken place were unsuitable for raising their chicks. As they studied these magnificent birds, they could see that the adult eagles were really struggling to feed their babies. And then instead of searching out new forms of food, they just fed them less often and in smaller amounts. At least three eaglets died from starvation during the researchers' observations. Amazon deforestation is directly pushing harpy eagles to the brink of extinction. And that sucks. Skepticism. Critical thinking. Logical fallacies, reason, doubt, fake media, p-hacking, journals, realizations, admissions, changing one's mind when presented with verifiable evidence. After my son was born, I realized I couldn't lie to him, and if I wanted to be able to answer his questions as he grew up, I had to get comfortable with saying, I don't know, when in fact, I did not know. There were still things I thought I knew, though. Some for a very long time. It took me until well into my 30s to realize why the sky is really blue. Somewhere along the way, I was told it was a reflection of the mostly blue earth on the atmosphere, and it wasn't something I was worried about, so I never thought to look into it or ponder how that would work scientifically. That's one of many areas where I've had to adjust my opinions on a topic after exposing myself to the verifiable truth. Having my son made me realize that there were a lot of things I believed that I couldn't trace back to anything other than a friend told me, or a boyfriend told me, or an adult told me when I was young. And they wouldn't lie. It's not that they lied, it's that they were fooled too. Someone they trusted told them, and they bought it just as easily as I did. So as a parent, instead of pretending to know everything or saying things like, that's just how it is, I made it a point to answer my kids in a pretty specific way. Unless it was a question I 100% knew the answer to, like, where are the crayons? I would start by telling them what I thought the answer was, and then I would tell them if I could recall how or why I thought that. I would make it very clear to them that it's always possible that I've always had this wrong, so they, or we, when they were small, should look it up and find out if I'm right. While I was often pretty confident about what I knew, I tried to show them that it's better to show humility. To always be ready and willing to admit that you may have been wrong about something. Now that they're teens, I will answer shit off the top of my head with the caveat that I want them to let me know if they find out I got that wrong. I don't want them to ever be afraid of correcting me. 
So having kids led to my initial dive into skepticism. The more I read and listened to, the more I realized I'd always been a bit of a skeptic. <laughs> Not just a skeptic, but the worst kind. I was that annoying, literal person. My mom once tried to tell me that some spot cleaner was so great her friend told her it will get anything out. My response was, well, obviously not anything. And that's a dick thing to say. <laughs> I get that now. But she was incensed, and she actually asked me if I was calling her friend a liar. As a teen, I didn't think a whole lot before speaking and ended up snapping at her. I went, seriously? Fine! Go get me your favorite white blouse and let me put a mark on it with a black sharpie. She never did go get me a blouse, but I mean, I was being kind of a dick. But yeah, I've always been that annoying person. If it's not true, why say it? If it's not true, why not call people on it? And I was always looking at people, even my parents, and asking, are you sure about that? So much always felt suspect to me, but I had no skills, no knowledge set to do anything about it for most of my life. As I began to discover and engage with skeptical communities and atheist communities, I realized that there are way more people like me out there than I ever imagined growing up in a small Christian town. As I started to be out about my atheism, I began to learn that there are so many people in church who have no belief in any of it whatsoever. I spent over 30 years thinking I'd been the only one when I still went. The thing about being out is you become a safe place for people who are not. I take that shit seriously, too. It's similar to coming out as LGBT, especially for children and teens. There are people whose parents will not associate with them, simply for the fact that they were honest about not having the ability to believe in a god. Kids get kicked out, lose their education funds. It's pathetic how some religiously brainwashed parents will treat their own children. I've heard quite a few calls on the atheist experience about whether to come out to parents or not, and the answer is often in the form of another question. Is it safe to do so? Or how old are you and will coming out basically put you on the streets? Whether it's coming out about being LGBTQIA2S+, or coming out as being atheist, while being authentic is important for mental health, one has to evaluate if they are in a safe position to do so. I consider myself to have been very lucky to have come to skepticism when I did. I see things every day that may have taken me in at one time in my life, and I purposely recognize them so I can be more understanding of those in my life who do get taken in by them today. I would have to say, out of all the things I enjoy and all the things I do, it's really skeptical inquiry that I'm most passionate about. And in this dangerous age of anti-fact checkers and people who believe that every person who ever went into a scientific field of any kind isn't on some kind of conspiracy, I'm more grateful for it every day. Two of the people who helped further inform my passions are now past. One was lost before I even discovered him. Never had much for TV growing up. But his works remain, and they have been invaluable to me. I'm talking about enormously friendly and personable Carl Sagan, who we lost in 1996. The other past skeptic I am talking about today is often irritated magician and genius debunker, James Randi. We lost him in 2020. Carl Sagan did not blame people for not knowing things or for thinking they knew things which were incorrect. He blamed media and education systems that did not teach how to distinguish between science and woo. He was what I would call a gentle skeptic. He taught me about how the most well-spoken, intelligent, curious people can be wrong, and methods of investigating whether they were or not. When people online ask why I care and why I have to correct them, I think about this quote which Carl Sagan included in the first chapter of Demon Haunted World. It's from the poet Thomas Gray. It goes, quote, 
It is morally as bad not to care whether a thing is true or not, so long as it makes you feel good, as it is not to care how you got your money as long as you have got it. Unquote. I feel that quote, man. The truth fucking matters. In Demon Haunted World, Sagan pretty much predicted the damage a Trump-like person had the potential to do to democracy. This book was written in the 90s, before social media. It's mind-blowing to read it today and see how his predictions about smart people falling for propaganda bullshit are coming true. Those are my words. I don't know if he ever used the word bullshit in speaking or writing. Anyway, it's wild to look back and see how he foresaw this downfall of scientific knowledge and acceptance and what it would do to our societies. He said that the way we arranged our entire lives and societies around science and technology, but then made it so most people did not understand that science and technology was a prescription for disaster. A quote from him on this topic is, We might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is going to blow up in our faces. Unquote. I swear he should have claimed to be a psychic. We've been watching his predictions play out live since 2016. The ignorance has grown to the point where flat earthers are an everyday thing. Young earthers are trying to take over the US and good people are being manipulated into sharing posts that go completely against their ideals without realizing it. Another quote later on in the book goes, when government and societies lose the capacity for critical thinking, the results can be catastrophic, unquote. And the reign of Trump proved it all fucking true. The way to fight all of this was education, and he knew it. Kids naturally want to know things. Most are naturally curious and more intelligent than most adults give them credit for. If the goal is a scientifically literate public, then Sagan said that has to be nurtured, not muted. Of course, the most important question to answer is always how we know. If someone just says something and can't demonstrate why and how they know that thing, then they don't really know it, do they? It may be a thought or an opinion, but if they can't trace back to any source, is it really knowledge? Or if their only source is someone said so or I saw it on TV? No, it's not. At the time this book was written in the 90s, US knowledge on things most of the world knows to be true was scary already. Can you imagine how bad it is now? At that time, again, this is the 90s, 63% of US adults were unaware that the last dinosaurs died before the first humans were on the planet. 75% of US adults didn't know that antibiotics kill bacteria, but not viruses. 57% of US adults didn't know that electrons are smaller than atoms. And oh my gosh, half didn't know that the Earth goes around the sun and it takes a year to do so. That last one has to have gone worse as the flat earthers have grown in numbers. And don't forget all the young earthers out there. Fuck. For someone to say there was some sort of scientific agenda is incredibly ignorant. The scientific community, unlike cults and religions, is all about proving each other wrong. Prove some mainstream accepted scientific belief to be wrong and you will be the richest and most famous scientist in the world. That's the kind of thing they award Nobel Prizes for. If other scientists are not able to repeat a finding, then that finding is not considered valid. Real science is repeatable. Science is everywhere, being done by everyone, really. Try this, does it work? Try that, and it works. Do the second from now on. It continues to work. That one that works every time? That's the scientific answer. 
If someone says they mixed yellow and red and got green, do you believe them? This is my own analogy, by the way, not from the book. Anyone can try repeating this experiment, and they will not get that result. They will all get the same result, however, because that's science. Yellow and red make orange. You will never be able to make them produce a green, no matter how much you may want it to be true. That, in a nutshell, is how science reaches answers. Either it's repeatable and verifiable, or it's not considered scientifically valid. Sagan's third chapter talks about how science has to be collective, collaborative, and communicative, or it just won't work. He's got that right. If people don't publish their findings to be retested by others, then how will we ever weed out the faulty studies? That's why findings change. Someone releases a study of 100 people, then someone does a study with 10,000 people. The one with 10,000 people is obviously going to be more accurate and should be put ahead of the one with only 100. Apparently, it was not uncommon after speaking somewhere for people to ask Carl Sagan if he believed in alien life containing UFOs. He states in this book that he does not understand why anyone would want to know what he believes. The proper question is, quote, How good is the evidence that UFOs are alien spaceships? Unquote. And I took this with me permanently going forward. How good is the evidence that something is true? How good is the evidence that it is not? Not just what are the people around me talking about or which bandwagon do I want to hitch myself to? He helped me to break free of that. In chapter 6, he showed even more foresight in discussing how the more and more absurd headlines being used to present articles were showing the media's expectations of, quote, unlimited audience gullibility. He predicted this day and age where huge swaths of people would be so gullible that they would be taken in by the most ridiculous claims. And here we are with people who recently waited for a dead Kennedy to return and lead them. Oh, and don't forget the growing groups of flat earthers. A chapter is spent on the dangers of flawed thinking, such as the witch trials, both European and American. And now there are preachers trying to bring that shit back again. Have y'all seen the video of the preacher yelling at his congregation that there are six witches among them and he knows who they are and blah blah blah? Holy fuck, what a piece of garbage. Of course his followers are all, oh wow, oh dear, not witches. Fuck's sakes, that's the US for you in 2022. Demon Haunted World spent some time on false memories and how they're formed, which is something I covered for a skeptical segment on episode 54, so I'm not going to go into it here. But there is one quote I'd like to share. Misrememberings are the rule, not the exception." Unquote. We could all be better people if we could remember this and keep it in mind. As I explained in episode 54, our memories are never the perfect snapshots we may consider them to be. What I always hear most about from Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World are the dragon in my garage analogy and the skeptical toolkit baloney detection kit. The dragon in my garage analogy is in chapter 10, and it shows very simply and with the use of simple reason why a believer cannot expect a non-believer to believe in their God any more than anyone can expect anyone else to believe that there's a dragon in their garage. He shows very clearly why there is no difference in a dragon you cannot see, hear, or feel, and no dragon at all. If there is no evidence for it, why should anyone be expected to believe it? And this analogy relates to any god from any belief system. If it interests you, find yourself a copy of this book and go straight to chapter 10. Then there's the skeptical toolkit, baloney detection kit. 
almost every skeptic I have ever listened to or followed has mentioned this. The purpose is to quote, construct and understand a reasoned argument and to recognize a fallacious or fraudulent argument, unquote. Here are some of the rules set out by Carl Sagan that skeptics everywhere have recognized as great tools in determining fact from fiction. It does not matter if one likes the conclusion, only the truth matters. There must be independent confirmation of the facts being presented. There are no authorities in science, only experts. Debate on evidence is encouraged by knowledgeable proponents of all points of view. One should come up with multiple hypotheses before conducting a study in ways that different results might be explainable. One should come up with tests for disproving those possibilities and explanations. A researcher should never get attached to a hypothesis just because it was their hypothesis. Things should be quantified where that is possible. All links in a chain of an argument must work. Occam's razor states that if one is faced with two hypotheses that explain the data equally, then the simpler should be chosen. I'd just like to point out that Christian apologists are constantly trying to twist Occam's razor to fit their narratives as a gotcha to atheists and skeptics, but they totally suck at it. Not one I've heard has ever been successful. Another thing in this toolkit is to ask if something can be falsified. Something that is unfalsifiable is worthless. If that weren't the case, then someone could literally say anything they want like Trump does. Obviously, the people who believe him either know nothing of how to tell truth from fiction, or they just don't care to. And finally, one cannot prove a negative. That is why the burden of proof is always on the person who is making a claim. I'm going to finish with Demon Haunted World with a few final quotes that really resonated with me. One, at the heart of science is an essential balance between two seemingly contradictory attitudes an openness to new ideas, no matter how bizarre or counterintuitive, and the most ruthlessly skeptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. Two, if questioning is discouraged, then it must be questioned. Three, quoted from Roman philosopher and former slave Epictetus, we must not believe the many who say that only free people ought to be educated, but we should rather believe the philosophers who say that only the educated are free. 4. If we can't think for ourselves, if we are unwilling to question authority, then we're just putty in the hands of those in power. But if the citizens are educated and form their own opinions, then those in power work for us. And 5. Real patriots ask questions. And I would like to add that real leaders answer those questions, not dismiss or walk out or make fun of disabled people when they don't want to. So that's a summary of some of the skeptical topics I learned about in Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. James Randi showed me how critical and creative thinking can lead to discerning the truth in so many ways. When he would come up with a way to show someone was faking something, it would be something super simple that literally anybody could do. Yet I never would have thought of it. He always thought of the right questions to get out of the way before the testing would begin, so the participant would have nothing to use as an excuse when it didn't go as planned. 
Randy really showed me how to look at things from different angles and how to come up with methods of testing what I believe to be true. I also kind of relate to his matter-of-factness. No gentle skepticism here. Unlike Sagan, he would use the word bullshit and other expletives if he felt the situation called for it. He wasn't a science educator like Carl Sagan, so he didn't have those patient teaching skills. He was more likely to go, that's bullshit and here's how and why it's bullshit, period. I guess I'm drawn to matter-of-factness because, oh my gosh, I loved him so much. Every interview I had the opportunity to listen to was an absolute joy. I really loved it when he would talk about touring with Alice Cooper. Cooper said that if someone was going to be beheading him on stage over and over again, make it look real and make sure nobody actually got hurt, then they needed James Randi. So Randi toured with Alice Cooper as his executioner. I just love that fact. Blim Flam came out in 1980 and the introduction talks about how media reporting had little to no skeptical inquiry in it anymore. News stories abounded about a man who claimed to have made a perpetual motion machine and they reported it as fact. None of them actually investigated the claim or asked to have it demonstrated and this worried Randy. The harm he saw in this was that if people incorrectly believe that a magical new source of unlimited energy exists, then they will not be motivated to work towards finding new means of energy, which is what we need. When people feel safe and secure in the lies, no progress occurs. If there's not enough acknowledgement of the truth from the powers in charge, then we can't go forward. But this is where we are today, in the middle of an energy crisis and bullshitters out there convincing people otherwise. This quote, again from 1980, is even more valid today. Folly and fakery have always been with us, to be sure. But it has never before been as dangerous as it is now. Never in history have we been able to afford it less." Unquote. In the very first chapter, he explains how we naturally remember the hits and forget the misses. And this is something I've heard again and again in skeptical talks, and I've learned to really stop and reflect when it seems like something always happens such and such a way. Is it always that way? Or do I just only notice it when it's that way? This is a huge lesson in learning how to determine if your own thinking may be on a faulty path. It's helped me out many times anyway. Though he tends to appear to be the somewhat ruthless skeptic, he does teach and acknowledge something similar to Carl Sagan. And that's that smart, intelligent people, even those trained in the physical sciences or medical arts, do not automatically have flawless judgment when it comes to psychic investigation and the like. Anyone can be fooled. Flim Flam contains real examples of real people who chose pride over reason. Examples of smart people who, when duped and shown that they were duped, were never able to admit it. Many of you who have read about the paranormal, as I did quite a bit in my teens, have probably heard about the scientists who were looking at shapes on cards and having teen girls sit across from them and try to guess those shapes. These scientists believed that the girls were really showing psychic powers. They were getting excited, maybe even getting ready to submit for a Nobel Prize. The girls admitted in the end that they were able to see the shapes in the reflection of the glasses of the scientist who questioned them. They thought it was just good fun to play along. It must have been kind of devastating for the researchers, however. To think they were on the brink of something and find out they'd been duped, that's never going to be fun. They were so sure that there was no way the girls could have possibly guessed all those cards without psychic powers. The reflection possibility was overlooked. It happens. That does not mean they were not extremely intelligent people. The smartest people can still be fooled, because sometimes it's hard to think of every single angle and every single possibility. It's just human to miss something once in a while. Flimflam covers details on many famous skeptical stories, such as the Cottington Fairies incident. 
I'll be covering that for a skeptical segment some days, so we'll not tell the story here. But he uses this true tale of deception to explain about how we're often wrong about the possibilities and impossibilities of what we see. People assume that the perpetrators have no motive to be deceptive, or they assume that the perpetrators would be incapable of the deception, that it would be much too complicated for them. These were all used in the Cottington Ferry incident to verify that it must be real and true. Of course, we all know today how it was done. If you don't, then stay tuned for a future skeptical segment where I will be covering that particular deception. The deception that proved that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may have written about a skeptic, but he certainly was not one himself. The book goes into a bit on transcendental meditation, the Mara Rish effect, and claims of levitation. There's a section on Eric von Derrickson and all of his bullshit books and claims, and another on the Fox sisters and how they created the raps and thumps that everyone thought were spirits communicating with them. There's a chapter that discusses psychic surgery and how sleight of hand and the use of cotton, wool, and animal bits, along with cow and pig blood, fool people into believing tumors are being pulled out of their bodies. Randy explains a bit about confirmation bias and people who will believe the one person who confirms their beliefs over the thousands who may not, and how when information is presented that conflicts with their already held beliefs, they just ignore that. I would also call this a form of willful ignorance. There are three sentences in the book that I'd like to quote that relate to the issue of willful ignorance. It is careless of a man to fail to sufficiently research a subject on which he claims to be an authority. It is irresponsible for him to resist telling the facts when he discovers them. And it is irresponsible and callous for him to continue to misrepresent the matters about which he has been informed to the contrary. And we still see all of this today from preachers and other people pitching woo of different kinds. Once you have been informed, it is absolutely immoral to continue to pretend that you have not. If you are interested in some factual debunking of most of what you have probably heard about the Bermuda Triangle, go directly to the third chapter of Flim Flam. It takes Charles Berlitz's claims from his book one by one and shows exactly how and why they are not true, and in which ways the stories they may have been pulled from have been adjusted. It's also common sense once you hear it, but some of us still need that pointing out to really understand. I know I did. It's amazing how many different kinds of public records we have available to us now. They can be compared and contrasted, making it much easier in the end to figure out the truth. Randy did social experiments to show people that they are believing in false things. He was always ready to show us the error of our ways. When speaking about astrology, he said that it was a mathematical, physical fact that quote, the gravitational influence of the physician's body as he assists childbirth has far greater effect on the baby being born than the entire gravitational field of the planet Mars, unquote. There was a Montreal newspaper called Midnight that turned into something in the end that Randy didn't want to be associated with, but at one time he was asked to write their astrology column, so he did so under the name Zoran. He took the job as an experiment, though he did not tell his employers that. Randy went and bought an astrology magazine, cut out a bunch of random readings without the notations of which signs they were supposedly for, mixed them up and used them to randomly fill in the spots in each issue. He was dismayed at the fact that people ended up at the newsstands excitedly going to their readings. He approached some people and asked what they were talking about one time and was told about Zoran and that he was right smack on the week before. So he had inadvertently pulled people even further into their false beliefs in this case. But I mean... He was only 17 years old. Also, I don't know if y'all are aware that none of us were actually born in the sign we were given. Those were the signs way back when all this was first invented, but our position and relevancy to the rest of the universe changes over time, and the dates for the signs were never ever changed to reflect this. So for example, 
If you were born on August 7th, when it was first invented, you would have been right in the middle of the dates for being a Leo. But when you were born, the sun was actually in Cancer. So really, that's the one that, assuming this were true, would affect you. Same with someone born April 7th. They would consider themselves to be a strong Aries, right in the middle of the Aries dates. And that would have been the case when it all started. But if you're alive today, and you were born on April 7th, then you were actually born when the sun was in Pisces. Randy's Winnipeg connection occurred when he did a social experiment on people who believed in astrographology. He was booked for a radio show here in our Manitoba city, which wanted to present him as a great Canadian magician and conduct a phone interview with him at his home in New Jersey. He agreed, but of course wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. So he agreed on the condition that they would advertise his upcoming interview under another name. They were to say that they were having an astrographologist on the show and encourage the listeners to send in samples of their handwriting along with their birth dates and he would do readings when he appeared on the show. When he came on the line, there were three people waiting for their readings. They had each sent in handwriting samples and birth dates. He never saw any of it. This was an old school phone interview after all. But he provided three readings and the people he read scored him a nine and two tens. When asked where Randy lost a point, the person who gave him a nine explained that Randy said he didn't like to work hard, but he actually works hard all the time. Randy responded, but you don't like it, do you? And the person changed their score to a 10. It's so easy to manipulate people. With his mentalism abilities, Randy could have been the greatest con man that ever lived. But lucky for us, he was honest. He would always finish by telling you he lied, that you had been fooled, that none of it was real. In fact, the readings were randomly pulled from Las Vegas astrologer Sidney Omar for this case. He pulled another such stunt on a radio show called The Long John Nebel Show. They worked with him to plan this performance. When Randy came on the air, he acted like he had just come running into the station all out of breath. He then excitedly went on to describe a set of orange objects in a triangle formation in the sky which he observed on his way over to the station. Of course, this was all a made-up story. It didn't matter, though. Calls immediately started coming in, confirming his sightings and offering further descriptions. Within an hour, everyone listening was sure of the number of objects that were seen, as well as their speed and direction. Of course, it's James Randi, the honest liar, so he told them that it was a hoax in the end. That day, he really showed the listeners how easy it is to create a full-blown flimflam out of nothing and get it supported and built upon by random people. This explains so many commonly believed UFO stories. So if the proof you are provided for something being true is that many people saw and reported it from different locations, yeah, that is not evidence. Just think back to this incident for a moment and don't let yourself be fooled. Randy explains that the reason science is a changing thing is that it is self-correcting. The only thing that has ever proven science to be incorrect in the entire history of man has been better science. Scientists are also human and totally prone to messing up. It's going to happen. Anyone can be fooled if they do not double check on things. Quote, no one is completely immune to wishful thinking and to stubborn adherence to error in the face of the facts. He talks about a specific case where there were claims that many scientists had repeated the studies confirming the results. Many more went on to speak of this as fact until it came out that none of the experiments conducted had been double blinded. The experimenters were all aware of what the expected or desired outcomes were. That's not unbiased science. I like to say that skepticism without science has no procedure, while science without skepticism has no standards. They need each other. Randy was a very outspoken skeptic, and as an incredibly talented magician, he was often able to spot the tricks the fakers were using. 
When he did, he would do what he could to reveal to the world that this person was faking it, and this is how they were doing it, and don't give them any more money or attention. One day, someone told Randy that he should put his money where his mouth is, and that's how the Million Dollar Challenge eventually came to be. He thought about that comment and figured, why not? It would be incredible to be proven wrong in any area of woo. It may even be worth the $10,000, which is how it first began. Later on, when the JRA Foundation took over the challenge, it went up to a million dollar challenge. He was outspokenly confident that the money would never be claimed, but ready to be proven wrong if it turned out someone could show him so. This million dollars was payable to, quote, any person or group who could perform one paranormal feat of any kind, unquote. The goal was to, quote, show under proper conditions evidence of any paranormal, supernatural, or occult power or event, unquote. By the end of it, over 600 people had tried for the money. Only 55 ever made it past the preliminaries. In Flim Flam, Randy tells how there were two types of people who would try out for the challenge. Those who really believed that they had genuine powers, and those who knew damn well that they did not, but were sure they could fool him as they had countless others in their lives. Of course, they provided all sorts of excuses for why they could never perform under skeptical observation. They would blame the skeptic for having negative energy, or the psychics would say the spirits know he's testing them. Oh, and my favorite, there's too many controls. More controls means it's more likely to fail. Um, yeah, that's the point. If it were real, then the controls would not matter. There's one dowser who tried to win the funds that I have to share because it's one of the simplest debunkings I've ever seen. Randy was very careful to have him demonstrate his supposed talent in different ways before revealing what the test would be. The man demonstrated on the coins provided on the table there. Then Randy asked if it would work if there were a piece of paper or something covering the coins. The dowser said of course and allowed the coins to be covered and demonstrated again how the rod points right at them. Finally, Randy asked, what about if they were sealed in an envelope? Would that cause any interference with the dowsing at all? The dowser said no way, so the coins are put in an envelope, and he once again demonstrated that when he doused, the rod pointed right at them. Once he had shown that he could supposedly do it through the envelope, Randy pulled out several identical envelopes with just paper in them to make them appear similar, had the dowser turn around, and spread them out on the floor. And he failed. As soon as he didn't know where the coins were, he was unable to get the so-called dowsing rod to point at the coins. He was even caught trying to nudge the envelopes with his foot, at which point he was stopped and told to turn around again so they could mix them up again. By nudging them with his foot, he would be able to tell the difference between an envelope with coins in it and an envelope with just crumpled paper. So yeah, it was so easy to prove this person was full of shit. The method so simple and irrefutable, yet I never would have thought of it. In the book, Randy shares some of the applicants, claims, setups, and results of a few others who gave the Million Dollar Challenge a shot in Flim Flam. He doesn't talk much about Uri Geller, though, but those are some of my favorite TV moments ever. I think there were at least three instances where Johnny Carson brought James Randi on to debunk Uri Geller. The first time Uri didn't know he was there watching the trick from backstage. After the performance in which Geller said he was turning pages of a book with his mind, Carson brought Randi on stage and asked him what he thought, if he thought it was a legit psychic power they were witnessing. Randy is a very talented magician and mentalist. Remember, that's why he's so good at spotting this shit. He told Carson that Geller was using his breath to move the page, and he would prove it. He got some super light styrofoam popcorn bits and spread them on the table around the book, explaining that if the pages moved this time, and the styrofoam did not, then he may be doing it with his mind. Because if he uses his breath, he will affect the styrofoam as well. Of course, Geller could not perform once the styrofoam was there. It was great. See how smart? 
So simple, yet so definitive. See why he's one of my skeptical heroes? There are two quotes in the epilogue of Flim Flam that I'd like to share here. Throw away the tarot deck and ignore the astrology column. They are products offered you by charlatans who think you are not the marvelous, capable, independent being you are. And nonsense has reigned too long as the emperor of the mind. Take a good look. The emperor has no clothes. And that's a little bit about how I got started in skepticism and a lot about two of the people who helped me along the way. Lack of skepticism, critical thinking, and science literacy is so close to ruining the future for our children. Please keep in mind that real tyrants and autocrats actively discourage, even limit abilities and access to literacy, learning, education, and newspapers. In recent years, Republicans in the U.S. and some conservatives in Canada have taken up this stance. Education? Psh! Who cares about education? What does it mean, really? That is super scary, because people are actually buying into it, and as a skeptic, I know where that can lead. And it's straight into the tyrannical Christian nationalist nation that they are telling you all that they are fighting against. When conservatives come back into power in Canada, there will be one major thing I'll be watching for, and damn, I hope I'm wrong on this one. But I'm going to watch for how fast all of the free information literacy courses disappear. If it happens, it will be the biggest red flag of what's to come. A free country encourages you to think for yourself and encourages informational literacy, while a tyrannical country will tell you what to think about what and who. They will not want you to have access to the means of discerning fact from fiction. When the day comes, I will have to either admit I was wrong with great relief or say I told you so to so many people while pointing out how they got us there. There's an adage mentioned in the first chapter of James Randi's Flim Flam. The sleep of reason brings forth monsters. We have seen quite a bit of that in recent years, and unfortunately, it appears there may be more to come. Unless more people learn to be skeptical, damn it. As this comes out, World Poetry Day is tomorrow, March 25th, so I'm using this as an excuse to share something with you. While it is not actually a poem, but a transcript of a speech, it immediately struck me as being very poetic. The speech was given by Aaron Freeman on NPR News, and if I have my way, this will be right after I pass at the celebration of my life, if there is one. This is everywhere in skeptical communities, but maybe some of you haven't seen or heard it yet. Consider everything following the sentence a direct quote, and then if you enjoy it as much as I do, go look up what else Aaron Freeman has to offer. You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid the energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point you'd hope the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your brokenhearted spouse there in the pew and tell them that all the photons that ever bounced off of your face all the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair. Hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounce from you 
were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, and that those photons created within her constellation of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. You can hope that your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know that your energy is still around. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. And that's 57 episodes under my belt. Thank you for listening, especially if you got through all of this one. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me again in two weeks for episode 58 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There is also a Patreon, but I found out that people couldn't find it. So I've used the website sections in the social media pages to put the links, since I don't actually have a website. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any questions, corrections, comments, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.